As the vaccine rollout slowly gathers momentum, many countries are now entering a third wave of the coronavirus pandemic. What does this mean for the reopening of international business events? Are vaccine passports or bubbles the way out of the crisis? Are cities ready to host large meetings anyway? I'm James Lancaster and with me to discuss all of this is Ori Love, VP Clients and Operations at Kennis Group and President of the International Association of Professional Congress Organisers. So obviously the, the, the vaccine rollout is gathering pace around the world, uh, not at an equal rate by any means, but when the health crisis is over, what other factors uh, do you think will determine how quickly we return to pre-COVID-19 levels? Yeah, I think it, it will certainly take time. I believe that there will be still travel restriction in place in the coming one or two years. Even uh, you see, the, according to IATA, the airline industry, they plan for full recovery uh, for 2023 or even 2024. Of course, vaccination pace is an important factor, especially when we're talking about international events. And I think that in addition, we will encounter what we call COVID after COVID, from the word poverty, especially when we're talking about low and mid middle uh, income countries. We know that institute, organization, and even sponsor will budget uh, for less investment for future meeting. Yeah. Uh, so I guess it will take around two to three years to return to the 2019 levels. Do you think we will ever exceed previous levels? Um, or do you think international business events may have peaked? It, it might. Because I think one of the, let's say, positive or advantages of this pandemic is that, you know, with virtual events, it gave opportunity for association to increase their exposure mm. uh, to audiences that never participated in a physical event. So the, the reach is now and the potential now is much higher. That means that when we return to the same levels of in-person meeting, uh, we might see the same number of people alongside with additional audiences uh, uh, in a virtual presence. So I think, I guess the potential is there for growth, but growth doesn't mean a growth specifically from in-person, but uh, an holistic growth, let's say. Yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, a lot of associations reported, you know, 50%, even 100% or more increases on their delegate attendance when they went virtual. It'll be interesting to see how that translates to in-person, won't it? Whether these people, some of these people might be inspired to go to the physical meeting or, or whether they, you know, they're quite happy to sit at home and sit at home and watch. I guess a lot of that is to do with where these people were based, doesn't it? I mean, what I'm, what I'm hearing is that associations, their reach expanded. So they, they sort of geographical reach, they are finding people coming, attending their meetings from countries that they'd never tapped into before. Is that something that you recognise? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we've saw, we've saw in our virtual events delegates, uh, joining for their virtual events from countries that never participated in in, in an uh, uh, in-person meeting, and and I guess that moving forward, the the objectives uh, or the focus of the in-person meeting will will shift mm. because I mean, organization realized that education can be consumed online, and therefore uh, the focus of the in-person meeting uh, will be more around networking. Uh, community building, uh, hands-on uh, experiences, workshops, um, and and of course, you know, content will sp still be the core, but content can be also consumed online. That's the big question mark over this, isn't it? Will the 
will the function of an in-person meeting change? I suspect, like you say, I suspect it will. I think it, it will have to. Um, it, I think networking will become more important. Do you think? Uh, yeah, abso absolutely. Absolutely. Networking uh, and, and uh, research collaboration. Uh, we know that the uh, development of, of science and technology um, is actually was done when, when we had an in-person meeting. So uh, new opportunities came when people met. And I guess that will, you know, that will remain the same. Mm. Uh, but I mean, other uh, educational activities can, can be, you know, continue online. So when you see, I mean, I've received several press releases recently from convention centers who are planning quite major expansions of their, of their footprint. Obviously, these plans were already in the pipeline before COVID-19, but they're pressing ahead with them. What goes through your head when you hear about that? Do you think that's do you think that's wise at this point to be to be spending millions and millions of pounds building bigger convention centers? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that they have to expect that they will see a longer return on investment because again, mm. we, it will take time. But I, in addition, I, I would recommend them to build the new spaces with maximum flexibility because we need. I mean, as a PCO. Uh, I think we would need spaces that can quickly adapt for changes mm. and that can serve different formats. Uh, you know, not only the regular seated plenary halls, but we will probably need more smaller spaces for networking, as, as we mentioned, hands-on workshop, meetups, and even studios. So I guess that all venues are now investing in equipments that will uh, enable live streaming, uh, webcasting, but also uh, live studios, um, and those are kind of a investment that I would recommend. So the blockbuster kind of headlines of, you know, 30,000 square meters. And this is what you tend to get in the press releases. You tend to get, it's all about how big these places are. Um, but that maybe is not what a PCO is looking for in the future. It's more like you say, a kind of adaptability, a flexibility, how we can actually use the space in an interesting way. Exactly, exactly. Can its groups clients this uh, i was interested in this because obviously your your whole history is is around sort of medical international medical association right. business really isn't it i think do you have is that all of your business medical associations do you have non-medical associations as well on the books we i, I would guess that 80 percent is around medical life science association but we also do other uh, also corporate events, yeah. uh, but also engineering, agriculture, so those kind of type, types of meetings. So what, what were your medical association clients telling you about the shift to virtual in 2020? I'm just trying to think if there are any kind of practical reasons why face-to-face -face is more desirable for that kind of audience. Um, I know some medical association congresses were sort of doing, um, you, you know, sort of mock-up surgery and all this kind of stuff before COVID-19, it was getting a lot more kind of hands-on and practical. Um, what, what were their experiences of 2020? Yeah, I mean, uh, we serve many different associations. Uh, so I guess we see the entire spectrum. Uh, on one hand, you'll see association that have really enjoyed, I would say, the, the virtual experience. And they are so eager to continue the virtual, they're not even thinking of an in-person. That's uh, on one hand. On the other mm. side of, of the spectrum, you see associations that are postponing and canceling and postponing again. And the whole idea for them is just to get the people together mm. uh, and to network, uh, which is their main objective. 
So they they let you know they less see the importance of the virtual meeting, and I guess that the the majority are somewhere in the middle. So they realize that they have no other option; they have to go virtual. They did it. Uh, they I mean the majority majority of them were uh, very uh, satisfied from the results, even financially. Uh, but uh, again, I think they are eager to to go back to in person, but they also understand the challenges with with going hybrid. Maybe we'll speak about hybrid in a minute. Um, so they, they, there's a lot of uncertainty. They don't know yet. Uh, they're going to test the water probably. Um, but again, they've learned and they realize that education can be done online. They're investing more in e-learning portals, uh, maybe communities that uh, will enable education 365 uh, days a year. Mm. Uh, but they are also... Uh, looking forward to go back to in-person. Yeah, so most associations see a bit of um, benefit in virtual, a bit, and a lot of benefit in face-to-face, -face, and they're trying to kind of negotiate a kind of balancing act, I suppose. How much weight do we put into face-to-face? -face? How much weight do we put into the virtual element? The, with that in mind, perhaps you, you mentioned hybrid. What do you understand by the word hybrid? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, hybrid, the big buzzword. Um, you know, everybody now is, is facing the hybrid challenge. And um, hybrid is a big word with mm. a lot of different uh, uh, implementation, potential implementation. And uh, we are also, all of us, looking for what is the financial model that will make financial sense when mm. going hybrid. Because we all speak about, okay, hybrid means... Does it mean uh, that we'll have to double our, our uh, investment financially, but also when it comes to operational uh, efforts and maybe the incomes will be lower? So what does it mean for the profit levels for the associations? Mm. Um, and I mean, we are looking on, uh, we have some task force internally that are working on different scenarios right now, mapping all the different options for hybrid meaning. Uh, to hopefully select the, the top one that will make sense. Mm. Obviously, in the, it is really dependent of how many, what is the percentage of people who's going to be in-person versus the virtual. Of course, it's it's completely different when you have 20% on-site and 80% online or mm. vice versa. It's completely different. Um, so we are, we are now trying to figure out what is the best model uh, yeah. to help direct our clients uh, to that. Uh, but I guess we'll have to test things out like we did in the virtual space. I mean, the, the, if, if, we, if we look uh, a year back, the first virtual meeting we did in the first week of April and the meeting we're going to do that now in April is completely different. Um, we have improved every aspect of the delivery. We learned more TV production uh, style of, of uh, mm. it, you know, bringing the content. Um, so I guess it will be very similar to the when we're going to start working in a hybrid model. We will learn throughout. We'll have to, we'll have a learning curve uh, for sure. And uh, we'll improve the delivery. Yeah, that's interesting that you're, you're doing that. I, I was wondering what was actually going on behind the scenes because you hear this word bandied around hybrid, hybrid all the time. When in reality, I guess a lot of associations were doing a bit of hybrid before they were streaming some sessions and they were offering on-demand uh, sessions after the event. Um, so, 
but obviously it all depends on what we mean by hybrid and and how many people are there how many people are watching online so so you're you're actually going to come up with a, a kind of best case scenario and, and then put that to your clients and say we would recommend yeah, you do this yeah we're going to probably go with a few best case scenarios and uh that will make sense and then yeah we'll try to direct our clients uh, to that yeah so from a, from the PTO's perspective, you, you spoke a bit there about the association and the finance model of making these things work. Does it, uh, well, clearly, does it affect how, how the PCO business model, does that have to evolve as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, PCO have to adapt their business model all the time. Mm. Uh, and, and of course, when I say we look at different scenarios for Habit, it also reflects, of course, our business model for our offering for association and it'll come hand in hand mm. uh, but uh, we can't stand still um, it's uh, you know it happened also last year with with virtual and it will happen again in in, in the hybrid world mm. do, you, do you see PCOs I mean I know a lot of PCOs are doing this anyway but do you see a further shift into association management or um, consultancy or some wider uh, wider remit for, for the average PCO I mean, many PCOs are already providing association management uh, yeah. services. I, th I guess this will not change. But however, I mean, from my personal experience, Kenneth, uh, during this pandemic, our clients were more open to seek our guidance, uh, were more open to our advice, uh, or, or maybe in other words, they, they trusted us more because, mm. you know, it was very chaotic and, and they looked at us uh, uh, looking for our help and guidance. And, in, you know, in crisis moments, sometimes it's actually enhanced the collaboration. Yeah. Uh, and especially if you deliver as expected, you gain even more positive points with your clients. Um, so I guess this pandemic, uh, you spoke about consultancy. They, yes, they looked at us as, as, as a trusted partners, consultant. And I guess this, this hopefully will, will remain. That's interesting. Are you having to retrain your staff at all or upskill your your own workforce or or is you know the shift to virtual something that they sort of take in their stride as part of their job yeah i mean absolutely i mean we we have we have uh staff that were that you know shifted from the regular day-to-day -day job to support the virtual uh, execution uh this whole obviously help us retain our staff so if you were um, hotels in, in, in the hotel sales department or hotel operation or procurement that deals with venues and hotel, uh, we have shifted them to do uh, speakers recording or QAing mm -hmm. the, the system. Um, so they have obviously learned new skills and new, uh, and they they learned that there are new opportunities. Of course, we we needed additional staff with a, with a new skill set, especially when it comes to IT. To uh, since we have our own platform. And so we needed software development, uh, cloud specialist, uh, and I guess that uh, new skills that we'll see is uh, more of uh, data analysis uh, because we have so much data right now mm. uh, that we can learn from that we haven't had in the past. There have been several reports over I don't know, the last 12 months since the pandemic started that have tried to gauge what's happening with the DMOs and the Convention Bureau. And I know obviously, you know, one DMO is not set up in the same way as another. They're all very, all very different. But um, a, lot of them, a lot of them suggest quite heavy uh, budget cuts, a lot of staff on furlough. 
Um, a lot of you know, a lot of DMOs have, have virtually been put on ice, shelved for the time being. When you're planning ahead now for, for Congresses in, in two, four, six years' time, what's your experience of dealing with Convention Bureau at the moment? Are you are you finding a bit of a gap there or or is that patchy depending on where you depending on where you you are in the world? Yeah, first of all, my heart goes to those uh, friends in our industry that uh, that had to go to rough times. Mm. But I have been in constant communication with many DMOs and CVBs, um, and I think they're doing their best to stay relevant. Uh, they're learning a lot. They are trying to prepare for the for the day that we'll go back to in person. I'm I'm pretty positive that most of them are already ready to serve events. Yeah. They are putting in place all the uh, policy, safety policy and hygiene protocols uh, to be ready to serve. And of course, it will start on a national market and that will you know, build the confidence to go to regional and evidently to international. Mm. And in addition, you see uh, alliances uh, coming up like the EU CVB and the hybrid city alliances that uh, increase collaborations between uh, DMOs and CVBs to serve the uh, the new norm that mm. might be multi-hub or hybrid. Um, so I know they are eager to start working again, and they're doing their best to be be ready for that. Yeah, I saw the, the hybrid. Uh, what's it called? The hybrid alliance or the hybrid city network? I can't remember. That's a fascinating idea. I, I thought so. A neat way of doing it, and showed a bit of um, real initiative there. Um, have you got any in-person events yourself that you're you're going to go to this year? Have you, are you set your set your eyes on meeting in person uh, for the first time, or have you already met in person at a congress? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, not. Um, already a couple of weeks ago, we started proactively approaching our clients, saying, "Listen, 2021 doesn't seem like, uh, especially when we are serving international or, or European clients, it uh, doesn't seem." to be uh, feasible to have an in-person meeting. Uh, so we are converting one after the other uh, to virtual. We still have two in-person meetings that are planned for December this year. Yeah. Uh, hopefully that by December, um, we can go back to in-person, especially um, if it's a European meeting and uh, traveling will be allowed uh, freely, let's say in Europe without any uh, need for quarantine between countries, mm. um, so I'm I'm still optimistic that by the end of the year we can have those meetings. I would agree with you that the end of the year looks looks um, more promising now, especially on a kind of near regional level, like you say, Europe. So maybe meetings um, across continent, continental meetings rather than rather than international, I guess. Um, but that's better than nothing at all. With that in mind, do you have any thoughts on the vaccine passport? idea that's been floated around um obviously it raises all kinds of issues uh you know around how easy you can fake one of them for starters or um various civil liberties around you know not allowing people on planes if they haven't got a vaccine that kind of thing do you have any perspective from a practical sort of organizing a meeting uh perspective on, on vaccine passports uh, in general, I'm very much in favor of having a, a vaccine or a green passport. I mean, I can see the results here in Israel when we're, we're in a, uh, a lot of restrictions have been lifted. Restaurants, bar, concert, 
uh, you know, public gathering is allowed under a green passport, meaning mm. that you have been vaccinated or recovered from COVID, also a, a negative valid COVID test, or even quick tests that, uh, that allow in the entrance to venues. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, in a, even, even if you have those uh, green passports, Uh, of vaccine passports, you might not even need social distancing in, in, a, in a certain mm. place um, because it's, it becomes, uh, the venue can become a clean bubble. Yeah. And I think that will, that will incentivize people to get vaccinated because we hear a lot of people uh, that are concerned, that are afraid, that are against. Um, but I, I mean, I see here the results in Israel are fantastic. The majority of the population is already vaccinated. You see a dramatic uh, decrease in number of cases, in number of people in critical condition in hospital. Um, and as, as I mentioned, people, you know, uh, activities are starting to be open again. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm very much in, in favor. I think that idea of a, a bubble, you, you create a bubble is, uh, is probably one of the way out, ways out of this. As, um, in Barcelona, there's that rock concert recently, wasn't there? 5,000 people in Barcelona at a rock concert. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I, there's no reason why there should be a spike after that. And if there isn't, I think that's a great template for moving, for moving business events forward. So um, last question is a bit of a big one, this, but I, I, I like to ask people, especially in leadership mm -hmm. positions, this question. But um, what has the last 12 months uh, taught you? What have you learned about yourself, about business over the last 12 months? <laughs> I mean, I can write a book about yeah. that. <laughs> uh, but I, I, if I need to select one thing, is that you need good leaders to survive the tough times. Leaders that can demonstrate optimism, that have a positive approach, even in, in, in let's say, in stormy weather. Leaders who can also be honest with, with, this, with their staff, with their team, and, and even share bad news when, when things happen. And not less important to be a role model. I, I can tell you, uh, this is how our managers, our management has acted in this pandemic to help us a lot uh, to finish successfully this year. I mean, myself, as a member of the management, I did hands-on work. Uh, I recorded speakers. I did program management in our software, you know, updates. Why? Because I one is to be a role model and show people that, you know, everybody can do everything right now. Mm. But it also taught me a lot about what's needed to be done. Uh, what's my staff need to do, you know, to execute a virtual meeting. And I guess I, I learned, but I also showed that it's possible. So I think my biggest uh, lesson learned is, is, is about leadership. Yeah. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's been crucial over the last 12 months. Just like ability to give people a sense of hope and light at the end of the tunnel, because it has seemed at times as though it's just never ending, this crisis. So I suppose good leadership uh, steers us through these dark times. Listen, Ori, it's been great talking to you. Um, thank you very much for your time uh, today. And hopefully by the end of the year, I don't know when, but it might be a trade show or something. We can see each other in person and uh, share a beer. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to that. Thank you.